But this week I want to look at uh, the, seven, the seven last sayings of Jesus on the cross. The seven last sayings of Jesus on the cross. And uh, we're kind of at that, at that point where Jesus was on the cross. But, I, you know, we sing that song, and it's one of my favorite songs right now. It'll lead me to the cross. But I found this prayer, and uh, it's from a guy named Evan Roberts who was, one, who was used during the 1905-1904 Welsh Revival. And... Uh, you know, it was the kind of thing where God was just doing this sovereign, incredible thing. Um, and people, you know, people were getting saved all over the place. People were walking, crowds of people walking through the streets singing uh, songs of worship. Um, you know, it, it was just an incredible, incredible thing that happened. But really, um, and, and it really wasn't about one guy. It was just about what God was doing. But I want to read to you a prayer that, that uh, somebody, they, you know, they didn't have, uh, you know, recordings and all that stuff back then. Somehow, uh, you know, people would have to write things down. But um, this is just a prayer that uh, Evan Roberts uh, prayed. Just listen. It says, Lord Jesus, help us now through the Holy Spirit to come face to face with the cross. Whatever the hindrances may be, we commit the service to thee. Put us all under the blood. O Lord, place the blood on all our past up to this moment. We thank Thee for the blood. In the name of Jesus Christ, bind the devil this moment. We point to the cross of Christ. It is our cross, and we take its conquest. Reveal the cross through the name of Jesus. Oh, open the heavens. Descend upon us now. Tear open our hearts. Tear. Give us such a sight of Calvary that our hearts may be broken Oh, Lord, descend now, now open our hearts to receive the heart that bled for us. If we are to be fools, make us fools for thee. Take us, spirit, soul, and body. We are thine. Thou hast purchased us. Reveal the cross for the sake of Jesus, the cross that is to conquer the world. Place us under the blood. He goes on and says some more things. But you see... The whole point was to go where? To the cross. What Jesus did there at the cross for us. We looked, <clears throat> we looked uh, again for the last couple of weeks about the crucifixion of our, our Savior Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the shame, endured the cross, scorning its shame. And he carried the cross, and then you remember Simon... <coughs> From Cyrene, he was forced to carry it when Jesus was too weak. And, and this large crowd that was following, weep for yourselves and for your children, he said to them. And, and then they went to Golgotha, this Calvary, this, the place of the skull. He wouldn't drink the narcotic that was given to him, lessen the pain. He was nailed to a cross of wood. They divided his clothes, then they sat and they watched May we never just sit and watch, but fall and worship. Jesus, the King of the Jews. The crowds hurling insults at him, mocking him, shaking their heads. Come down from the cross and we will believe in him, they said. And you remember the two criminals that were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And both, they also marked, but one had a change of heart. And one said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, he said. And Jesus said, what? This day you'll be with me in paradise. We'll look at that again in a moment. 
Today, as I said, the seven last sayings of Jesus on the cross and, and, and these last words of Jesus before he died. These, you think about dying declaration. When people are coming up to that moment, they know that their lives are there at the end. And, and when they're facing death, they have, you know, there, there's more, I don't know, more of an openness. And even there's some legal situations that it can be, you know, used in a court of law, what somebody says. I read this, it says, in the law of evidence, the dying declaration is testimony that would normally be barred as hearsay, but may nonetheless be admitted as evidence in certain kinds of cases because it constituted the last words of a dying person. You know, of course, people throughout history, you know, they, they're carrying these burdens and they know they're at the end and they, and they, and they uh, you know, come out with the truth at the end. Jesus, of course, was never untrue about anything. He never had anything to hide. But, it, but the, the point of all this is that the, the words that he said were so very, very, very important. I read about, you know, there were, there were these ten fascinating deathbed confessions. The top ten fascinating deathbed confessions. And some of them were just kind of dumb. I didn't know. But this one was really important. There was a doctor in 1934. Uh, he offered a picture to a to a newspaper, the Daily Mail, and he told the, pip, the, the newspaper they noticed something moving in Loch Ness. You don't know Loch Ness? And he stopped his car to take the photo. He, he refused to have his num, name associated with it, so the photo became simply known as the surgeon's photo. Some of you might have seen that picture. And the, it says for decades that photo was considered to be the best evidence of the, of the existence of the... Loch Ness Monster. But in 1994, at the age of 93 and near death, Christian Sperling confessed that the surgeon's photo taken 60 years ago was a hoax. And the mastermind behind it was his stepfather, Marmaduke Wetherell. I'm sure glad he got that off his chest, aren't you? And now we all know it's ridiculous. If you want to see the picture, I don't know, I don't know what it was, but... It's interesting, but it's not locked. It's not Nessie. Some of you know her as Nessie. Last words. Sometimes people need to clear the conscience. But sometimes it's just to pass on something important. You read about different people who died in the scripture and, and they would pass on either blessings or other words that were very, very important to their offspring. <clears throat> Important words. Jesus' last sayings as, as his death was imminent. Very, very important. The last words I heard Bill Kinneman say is to live as Christ, to die as gain. Those are important words. To live as Christ, to die is gain. Let's look at number one, Luke chapter 23. We're going to go through you know, the gospels, obviously, to, to find these. But the number one is found in Luke chapter 23, verse 34. Luke 23, 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. First thing he, we have written down is that he prayed. He spoke to his father. He said, Father. 
what mattered most, first of all, was his relationship to his father. And, and, and that, and that, in those moments, he knew that there was a relationship there between him and his father. And, and when you and I come to those moments before our death, what is most important is that you and I have a relationship where we can call him Abba, Father. But if you think about it, he's, he's, in this, he's in these circumstances, and what does he do? He prays. And it's not just prayer, but prayer for those that were actually crucifying him. Praying for the enemies, those that were, were doing these things to him. Back in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, what did Jesus say? He said, I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. I'd say Jesus pretty much practiced what he preached, don't you think? But his prayer, look at what, look what his prayer is. His prayer is about forgiveness. Forgiveness from God, his desire that, that, that man would be reconciled to God, that, that forgiveness is huge, forgiveness is so important, that our sins would be forgiven. Of course, we have to understand and know that we're sinners, and sometimes we're, we're um, you know, kind of hesitant to admit that. But I think anybody that's honest with themselves know that there's something that's not right in the world with me and God. And it's sin. It's what God calls sin. It's what the Bible calls sin. Forgiveness is the path of reconciliation. He says they don't know what they're doing. Not that ignorance excuses us. It's just that the human race really has no clue about, about anything, to be honest with you. We think we know so much, right? But we really don't have much of a clue. And so the Bible tells us the truth. The Bible tells us what life is all about and what our true needs are and, and how bad of a shape we're in. And that without the Savior, like the song we sang, what a Savior. Without the Savior, where, what hope do we have? Where are we going to be going after this life? The psalmist said, Psalm 130, If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. With you, O Lord, there is forgiveness. This is we see in the heart of Jesus on the cross. Hebrews chapter 9 says, In fact, the law requires nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. He shed his blood for you and for me that we might be forgiven. He didn't just say, oh, Father, forgive them, but he did what was needed, that that forgiveness might be available to you and to me. Number one, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Number two, Luke chapter 23, verse 43. Look at verse 43. This is what we talked about earlier, where the criminal said to him, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. What, what kind of a better promise could you and I have that when we are at that point of death, those words would be spoken to you and I, today you will be with me in paradise. Hope beyond death, paradise, heaven, this is so important. The, uh, the NIV study Bible says it refers to a place of bliss and rest. And it, and it talks about the, in, the, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the, the Old Testament, that the word that's used in Genesis 2 of the Garden of Eden is, is this same word. Paradise. 
just like the garden, just like what, what God initially created for you and I, that, that we will be able to be with him and, and, and have fellowship with him and walk with him in the, in the garden, in the, in the place that's called heaven. The best thing about it is, is surely, he says to him, you will be with me in paradise. It's not that we go to paradise that's, that's important. Uh, the best thing about it, though, that is good, right? Paradise. But it's that you'll be with me in paradise. That you, we'll be with him in paradise. We're not going to be there alone. So what's required... When you look at this man here on the cross, he's there facing death. He's at the end of his life. What, what were the requirements to get into paradise, to go to heaven? No, he didn't have time for any baptism, right? Unless somebody was over there throwing water on him, you know, sprinkling him or whatever, as some believe that does the trick, I guess. He didn't have time to have communion. He didn't have anybody, you know, doing last rites over him. He, didn't, he certainly didn't have any time to do any good works. So he could get there and say, well, you know, I did this and this and this, so you need to let me in, right? And, and every other religion of the world except Christianity is based upon a system of good works that we get in because of what we do. I remember hearing years ago, uh, you know, uh, I think I read it, uh, a statement by Muhammad Ali that, you know, in the Muslim faith, you know, it's kind of like you, your good works and your bad works. And as long as your good works, uh, you know, outweigh your bad works, you're going to be okay. That's bunk. That's ridiculous. Our good works are not going to get us anywhere except a place we don't want to be. Notice as well here that it's not this, this whole concept of universal salvation. You know what I mean by that? Universal salvation, everybody is saved, right? Well, that's not what happened here, right? There's two, there were two there. He said to the one, today you will be with me in prayer. He didn't say that to the other one. Only the one who turned and called out to Jesus. J.C. Ryle, a, a teacher from the last century, said, One thief on the cross was saved that none should despair, and only one that none should presume. We can't, we can't presume that we're going to be there, and, and that's the kind of thing, you know, there's a big buzz recently about a guy who wrote a book that, you know, love wins and we're all going to be there. No, unless we cry out to Jesus Christ, we have not got that assurance, we have not got that hope. I read this in the Bible Illustrator. It says that among Buddhists in Tibet, when a man dies, the holy man or lama draws the soul out of the body to show it the way to paradise. It said among Muslim teachers, uh, among Muslims, teachers come to the tomb to instruct the dead as to how he or she will answer the two examining angels. In some Buddhist countries, priests recite sacred texts around the dead body and shifts night and day until his burial. And Zoroastrianism forbade weeping over the dead because it made passage to the afterlife more difficult. How different, how straightforward is the Christian view of death. Today you will be with me in paradise. Not all these gymnastics, these spiritual gymnastics, it's trust and faith in Jesus Christ alone. We're saved by grace through faith. 
and that not of works, so that no man could boast. Isaiah says, let the wicked forsake his way, the evil man, his thoughts, let him turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him, and to our God, for he will freely pardon. Turn to the Lord, that's what it's all about. Number three, let's turn to John chapter 19, the third saying on the cross, John chapter 19, verse 26, excuse me. This is kind of interesting, uh, this here. Verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? We, we don't know what, what happened to the, all the other brothers, uh, whether they had not you know, come to faith in Jesus at that point in time or what, but, but for Jesus there, he saw his mother, he saw the disciple who was John, who was writing this account for us, and it was important for him. There was something, uh, again, we, we can't speculate about what happened to the other family, but, but we can certainly see that Jesus was caring about his family. He had a love for his family. He had responsibility. And he trusted John. And he committed something very precious to him, right? His mother was very precious. And he committed her to John. John Corson said that a family is formed at the cross because that's where true families are forged and held together. I think that's, that's cool. Being at the foot of the cross together kind of holds us together. Jesus said, listen, you guys need to hold each other Watch out for each other and, and, and uh, for us, for our families to, to be at the foot of the cross. Very, very important. Number four, Matthew chapter 27. Number four. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 46. Let's review the first three Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Number two, I tell you the truth. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Number three, dear woman, here is your son. To John, here is your mother. And number four, verse 46, says, About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, we're glad he translated it for us, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those have got to be the most gut-wrenching words in all of history. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are the, 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 the opening words of Psalm 22. And when Jews who would hear those words, they would know, you know, they weren't marked out like we have them marked out. They would know this was the psalm that he was speaking about. We call that psalm today the psalm of the cross. Psalm 22 is the most quoted psalm in the whole New Testament. Someone called it the cry of desolation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It says he cried that out in a loud voice in the anguish that he felt at that moment. 
the, the silence of his father, his first prayer, Father, forgive them. I mean, there's something there. But at this moment in time when the darkness is there, it says in verse 45, the darkness came over all the land. The silence of his father, the feeling of abandonment. Now, some of us perhaps here were abandoned in one form, one shape or another. And we know a little bit about what it means to be abandoned. But, but multiply that by countless millions and, and the abandonment he felt, the judgment that came upon him at that time, that, that, that at that moment him boring the sin, uh, bearing the sins of all mankind. We've read this passage so many times. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. At that moment in time where the Father's uh, uh, voices silent and, and the judgment of sin being upon Jesus. The Father had to turn away. Why have you forsaken me? This is the cup that Jesus spoke about when he was there in the Garden of Gethsemane. Why have you forsaken me? Someone said this, the physical agony was horrible, but the spiritual alienation was, from God was the ultimate torture. And Jesus suffered this double death so that we would never have to experience eternal separation from God. See, he experienced it for us that we would not have to experience it. That's why we say he took our place. He took, he took our sins upon himself. The judgment that came upon him brought us life. Someone else said this was the price he had to pay for man's salvation. The incarnate Son of God took the torturous trail of a lost soul, walking out into the labyrinthine depths of outer darkness. Hebrews 2.9 says he tasted death for every man. And for a few moments he experienced in his consciousness the unspeakable horrors of eternal doom. And the darkness that covered the land was but a symbol of the deeper spiritual darkness that shrouded his soul. His cry of dereliction reveals the measure of his sacrifice. And on the cross, he paid the penalty for sin, which is separation from God. He took it. He paid it so that you and I would not have to. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Number five, back to John chapter 19 again. John chapter 19, verse 28. Number five of the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. Later, knowing that all was now completed and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. I'm thirsty. What does that tell us? He was fully human, right? He also was the Messiah who fulfilled all the prophetic passages of Messiah. And yet some that are to be fulfilled, he will totally and completely fulfill each one of those. But he was fully human so that he might die, die in the place of humans. That's why, you know, the animal sacrifices were not enough. They didn't do, the, they didn't do it because they were not, they, they, didn't, they didn't take our, they could not take our place. 
Warren Wiersbe said this too. He said, he thirsted so that we might never thirst. He said on the, and Jesus, it says on John 7, he says on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Trust in him. Maybe you're thirsty here this morning and you, you look and see what Jesus said. He, he did it for us so that he might be able to give to us the water of life freely. Number six, we're almost to the end here of the seven last sayings. And number six here found in John chapter 19, verse 30. It says, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. One more thing that he's going to say. <clears throat> we'll get to that in number seven. But this word that he says there, it is finished, is, is one word in the, in the uh, original language. And the word is tetelestai. Some of you have heard that. You find churches named that. It was a common word used in a lot of different uh, situations, especially by merchants when they would uh, receive payment for their goods. They would write that word across the bill, tetelestai, which means paid in what we have today, paid in full. It's all taken care of. You're all done. You're all set. John Corson again says it was the phrase an artist would use when he put the last stroke on his paper. A writer, when he put the last period in his book, it was a statement a businessman would make when a transaction was final. The, the pronouncement that they would give concerning a lamb that passed inspection when they were bringing the, the lambs to the temple to be given and sacrificed. The same word used again in a lot of different situations, but it was like, this is, this is it, it's done, it's perfect, it's right. It's paid. He said every other religion and cult bases its teaching on what one must do. Only true New Testament Christianity bases a belief system on, not on what remains to be done, but on what he's already done. It's finished. It's finished. He'd been saying that all along. When, when you read some of the things he said, he said, how distressed I am. He said, I have a baptism to undergo. How distressed I am until it is completed. In John 4, he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to finish his work. John 17, I brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. He knew what he had to do and he knew that, that it took that cross the finished work of the cross, you hear, you, you hear those words. They, they speak of the finished work of the cross. It's all done there, was done there, is finished, completed. We don't have to add anything to it. Sometimes we act like that. Well, I'm saved by the cross, but then uh, I, I keep, I, I get salvation by what Jesus did, but then I keep it by what I do, right? You know what I mean? Well, if I do something wrong, I might lose it. It's not mine anymore. Well, it's never based on what we did ever, ever, ever. It's based on what he did only. To pay the price for us, paid in full. 
I want to add a little side note here, though, just about you and I and, and that maybe the example, the fact that he finished what he was called to do. Again, that scripture where he says, he says, uh, you know, despite what he had to face, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Despite what he had to face, he went and finished what he was called to do by his father. And I, I believe you and I each have a, a calling. Each one of us has a calling and, and gifts that God has called us to use. And, and we need to be about what God's called us to do, looking at his example. And sometimes it's very difficult. Sometimes we, it, it's uncomfortable and, and painful and, 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 and the things that we need to do are not easy. Paul the Apostle, though, he said, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord, the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Paul said to a guy named Archippus in Colossians, he said, see to it that you complete the work you have received in the Lord. Now, this is not, again, for our salvation. It's just to fulfill our obedience in the discipleship and what we're called to do and be in this world. He says, see to it that you complete it. Follow through. Do what you are called to do. Bible illustrator, again, said, Haydn left an unfinished symphony and Raphael an unfinished painting. And we, too, sometimes must leave life with some things unfinished, but Christ could say, I brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. He's the ultimate example, obviously. We do the best we can. But we need to do the best we can because we're not always doing the best we can. Sometimes we're just sort of haphazardly, you know. It says uh, in, in, in Corinthians, it says, a steward... Somebody who's been given a trust must be what? Faithful. And faithful means to show up. Finally, number seven, Luke, back to Luke chapter 23, one final time. At this point where Jesus said it is finished and then he had these last words when he, when he calls out to the Lord, to the Father. In verse 46, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Trusting in his Father up to the very end. You know, when we're at death, when we're at death who, who else can we trust? Where, where are you going to turn? Not to your money. You already know that's not going to work because maybe you don't have any. <laughs> not to what you've accomplished in life. Doesn't matter. Not to how many, you know, friends you have, how big of a family you have. What, what are you going to do? But, but, but when you get to that point to say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. We find these very similar words in Psalm 31. He says, into your hands I commit my spirit. So we have these words 
Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Forgiveness. I tell you the truth today, you will be with me in paradise. Eternal life in the paradise of God with him. Dear woman, here is your son, here is your mother to John, family at the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The judgment upon Jesus. I am thirsty, he said. It is finished. And Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Those are incredible, huh? Those are important words from the most important person who ever walked on the face of the earth to take them to heart. So very, very important. I want to uh, play a video before we close in prayer. This is, uh, this is from 1992. You'll notice it by the haircuts. Um, and it's uh, a gal by the name of Crystal Lewis. How many of you heard of Crystal Lewis? At the Harvest Crusade in Anaheim Stadium. Um, and the song that she's singing is called, You Didn't Have to Do It. And it's really about the cross. It's about Jesus going to the cross. He didn't have to do it, but he did. Why? Because he loves us and, and all he did. And then we'll, we'll close in prayer uh, after the video. How are we doing? Here we go. Good.
amen to that, huh? Is that good?